Now, last week, uh, we did the second half of chapter 15, and, and we got some other examples of kind of what faith looks like. We got some really great ones in chapter 14, and now chapter 15 had some as well, um, where we see this uh, Gentile woman, Jesus and the disciples go uh, to this town about, or an area about 50 miles from where they were, and um, this woman finds out that Jesus is there and begins pursuing him and calling out after him, son of David, have mercy on me. And we find out it, it had to do with her daughter who is demon possessed. And, and she's just begging Jesus to, to do something about it. And he doesn't seem, he doesn't respond. In fact, it says he answered her not a word. And that seems so contrary to Jesus' character, right? But we saw that as that story unfolded, he was really kind of drawing out her faith. He was bringing her to that point where he could go, that's it right there, right? And, and displays her faith um, for everyone else that um, she had this understanding that most, and in some ways even the disciples, missed. Now after, this, the, or after that, Jesus goes out, the large crowd forms, and, and once again Jesus says, you should feed the crowd. <laughs> and the disciples, instead of going, oh, well, you did what, you know, you took care of it last time, and no problem. Instead, they kind of go into this panic of like, there's too many people. We don't have enough food. How are we going to do this? And, and we talked about how it isn't that they forgot, but they, they, they were doing the same thing we do. We, we've seen Jesus' faithfulness. We've seen him provide so many times. Yet, when we're confronted with a very similar thing that we've been through before, we go, oh, I don't know if he's going to come through this time, right? And, and so the Lord just shows his faithfulness and just patiently takes them through that all again. Now we get to chapter 16, where he is continuing to deal with some of the religious leaders. And this is going to spark two questions that he's going to ask of the disciples. First, there's a warning that he gives about the religious leaders, but, but it, the whole thing is, is leading to this uh, asking of these two questions. And these questions, particularly the second question, is actually solely the, the second question he asked, will change the way that we live our lives. It changes the way we treat one another. It changes the way we view this world and its treasures and how it sets our priorities. And I, I think we know this, and as we go over it, we're going to go, okay, uh, yeah, sure, I, I agree with all of that. But I think for us to look at it fresh, it resets those priorities. It, it takes us back to answering some some hard questions about where our heart is and where we're storing up our treasure and where our focus is. So let's pray and we will get in to chapter 16. God, once again, we are so grateful that you have brought us together as a family and we are here to learn of you. We want you to teach us about yourself. Holy Spirit, we just give ourselves, we give this time and we pray that you would have full reign in this place. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So chapter 16, starting in verse 1. It says, Then the Pharisees and the Sadducees came, testing him, asking that he should show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, It will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites. You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the sign of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given it except the sign of 
the prophet Jonah. And he left them and he departed. Now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. And Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. And Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not understand or remember the five loaves and the five thousand and how many baskets you took up? Nor the seven loaves and the four thousand and how many large baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? And then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. We talked, to this a little bit, talked about this a little bit last week, how the scribes and the Pharisees were two groups. We read a lot about them. They come up a lot in confronting Jesus. Um, and we could get the idea that these groups got along and that they were united. Very much the opposite. They hated each other. They were constantly struggling for power and who was in control and who had the popularity. And the fact that Jesus has become kind of the, the, the one that's brought them together shows us what a threat they saw Jesus as. That to make him the common enemy, they understood that their power, that their way of life, that their teaching, all of it was being threatened by the teachings of Jesus. Again, we talked about that in the Sermon on the Mount, where over and over again he said, you have heard it said this, right? But I tell you this. He was correcting their teaching. He was very openly going, this is what the religious leaders have taught you. It's wrong. I'm telling you the truth. And they understood that. And so I believe that's probably a big catalyst for them coming after Jesus, not the only one, you know, but it, it certainly was part of it, is that they saw their power being threatened. Now, in chapter 12, another group of religious leaders, the scribes and Pharisees, came to Jesus, and they also asked for a sign. Now, again, keep in mind how many things they'd already seen. The blind were seeing, lepers had been cleansed, all of these things, demons cast out of people, so there were plenty of signs for them to look at, but they still are taking this approach like they're considering the fact that maybe Jesus is the Messiah. Well, we just need a little bit more proof. Well, we're still just gathering information. You need to give us a little more evidence. This group takes it a little bit further. They don't just ask for a sign. They ask for a sign from heaven. And that has to do with uh, a teaching that was very popular amongst the religious leaders at the time, that anything basically that touched the earth could be counterfeit by the devil. In other words, because Jesus was bringing sight to the blind, and cleansing the lepers, well, they, ever, they were all touching the earth. They were all part of this earthly plane. Therefore, the devil, who was also out there, could counterfeit it. And, and they brought that accusation against Jesus a couple of times that the only reason he, he can cast out demons is because he's basically the, the leader of all demons, that he's possessed by the devil, right? Or a greater demon. And that's that same mindset, right? And so now they say, what we really need is a sign from heaven. You can call down fire from heaven, that's fine. You can call down lightning, 
It would be even better if you did it upon a, a Roman legion. That would, that would show us something, right? And again, it gives them that appearance like they're wanting to understand, like they're wanting to believe when they've already made up their minds. And these were the guys that saw themselves as being the keepers of truth, the keepers of the scriptures, the teachers of the ignorant, right? And, and all of the people were considered the ignorant. And, and so when Jesus comes along and says, don't listen to those guys. They don't know what they're talking about. They are the blind leading the blind. I mean, he's used very clear, harsh teaching against them. And though they saw themselves as being so important and so needed, the reality is um, Jesus is exposing them for who they are. They believe it's their job to see if Jesus measures up. And the reality is they don't get a vote at all. That he is who he says he is, no matter what they say. Um, and he exposes that this is a choice, that they're not ignorant. They understand these things. They're just ignoring them, right? And he uses the example that they can tell what the weather's going to do. That they can, they can look at the sky in the evening or in the morning and go, oh, this is what the day's going to be like, or this is what tomorrow's going to be. It's always funny, and it's always struck me funny here on the big island that people go, oh, there's lightning. There'll be snow on the mountain tomorrow. And there is. <laughs> it shocks me every time. And it's just, the, you know, you understand the weather patterns, the area that you live in, and what, it's gonna, what it means, right? And Jesus goes, you guys are hypocrites. Because you can understand the sign of the sky. You can understand what predicts the, the, the future in some ways. And though you know the scriptures, you're ignoring what they say. They had a lot of evidence. They understood a lot of things that Jesus was fulfilling prophecy. They knew that he was of the tribe of Judah, that he was of the line of David, that he had been born in Bethlehem. These were all very important prophecies to the Messiah. Even the miracles that he was performing, that he was performing everywhere he went, was a fulfillment of prophecy. Yet they're ignoring that. What Jesus is pointing out is that no amount of signs or wonders will make them believe. And if we're honest, if we're only talking about signs and wonders, signs and wonders will not make anyone believe, no matter how great they are. Miracles don't make our faith. And we talked a lot about that last week. That there isn't anything that we can see that will, oh, then I'll never doubt again. We want something like that, but it just simply doesn't exist. That even if one should rise from the dead, they won't believe. That's the importance of why Jesus says no sign will be given to this wicked and adulterous generation except the sign of Jonah. That as Jonah was in that fish for three days and three nights, Jesus will be in the earth. He will give his life, die on the cross, and be in a tomb three days and three nights. And then he will rise again, conquering sin and death, and hundreds of people will see him and they still will refuse to believe. In fact, they will try and repress the truth that he has risen. They've already made up their minds. And that's why Jesus says in verse 4, they are a wicked and adulterous generation. 
Not because they're asking questions. Not even because they ask to, to see some proof. It's that they've already made up their mind and there's, they're wanting Jesus to do something so big and amazing. They're basically telling, prove it to us. Prove it, and then maybe we'll, de- we'll decide that you're the Messiah. Prove yourself to me. That's what comes down to the idea of testing God. You know, when Jesus was speaking, arguing with the devil, being tempted by the devil, and he, he said, thou shalt not test the Lord your God. That's what that test really means. It's us who are these little tiny specks calling out to the eternal holy God, prove yourself to me. It's a bad place to be in. That their hypocrisy, their arrogance, their self-righteousness, all of these things had hardened them against the truth of who Jesus was. And because of that, Jesus then warns his disciples about this. In verse 8, it says, Then Jesus said to them, Take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, Jesus isn't worried that the disciples are all going to just like go off the rails and become Pharisees, become Sadducees. But this self-righteousness, this legalism, this arrogance... A lot of times we see that as an end result in someone, and we kind of picture, like, that's how they always were. And what Jesus is pointing to is that that's not how they were in the beginning. That's not how these things start. They start so small, like yeast or leaven put into bread dough. Such a small little thing. In comparison to a big lump of dough, just a little bit of yeast goes in, and it begins literally... We don't like to think about this, but what's taking place is a putrefaction of the bread dough. Those little bubbles being formed are from a rotting that's taking place, and it permeates everything. So Jesus is warning that this leaven, it starts off so small. That the scribes and the Pharisees, they didn't begin this way. They, they probably began wanting to please God. They probably began wanting to be men of God and be righteous But they have gone the way, a little bit at a time, to be hardened against God himself. Now, throughout Scripture, New Testament and Old Testament, that picture of leaven is always a picture of sin or of evil. And so now he's connecting it very specifically with the religious leaders and their arrogance and self-righteousness and all those things. I love the disciples' response. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because here Jesus is like letting them know, guys, this is a warning. This is something to think about. And they're like, is it because we forgot the bread? I mean, I, I like them because I get them, right? Just like this deep truth is coming your way and it's kind of right over the top. You're like, is it about bread? Is that what he's talking about? And they're like all discussing it. I probably, you forgot the bread. No, you forgot the bread. Come on, you know. And Jesus, again, I can, I. It's easy to picture him annoyed, at least for me at this point, like, oh, boys, you know, that's not what I'm talking about. But he's not like that at all. Instead, he's just very patient with them and just just begins to, he wants them to understand this. He wants them to get that, that this is something every single person needs to be aware of. And I like the fact that Jesus warned the disciples because we can look at it and think, well, the disciples were in a, man, close relationship with Jesus that none of us will ever know in this life. 
And yet he still feels necessary to warn them. Guys, you need to be careful of this. And so it applies to all of us as well. We need to be careful of this. If they needed to be concerned about it, if Jesus had to bring out this warning for his guys that he was pouring so much truth and love into, then we need to be careful as well. That this is something that starts small. The leaven of the scribes and of the Pharisees, the Sadducees. And he explains it to them. Guys, this is what I'm talking about. And I like that it says, and, and they got it, right? I don't think they fully understood, but they understood enough. Like, okay, this has nothing to do with bread. He's warning us about the doctrine of the scribes and the Pharisees, right? And that they take this seriously. And it's interesting because if you take it from here and then read through the book of Acts, the concern of that self-righteousness comes up again and again and again in the book of Acts, that these guys took this warning seriously. And they have their low times, a few times that, that maybe they didn't make the best decisions, but they keep coming back to like, no, this isn't about law. This isn't about rule. This isn't about us creating some sort of righteousness. It's about us submitting to his righteousness, right? All right, verse 13. It says, when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah, others one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also will say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus, the Christ. Now, Jesus asked these two important questions. But really, the first question is the setup for the second. So first, he asks, who do men say that I am? And to some degree, there's a, there's a progression that all of us took here, right? That no one just woke up one morning and went, I think Jesus is the Son of God, all on their own. There was information given. Somebody shared Jesus with us. And we kind of had to ask, well, who do they say Jesus is? I don't really know myself. And you have to kind of weigh out, who is this person? What is their life like? Are they joyful people? Or are they bitter people? You know, And you have to kind of weigh out the information they're giving and what effect it has had on your life. So this is really where we all start. Who do others say Jesus is? But there is a point where we have to decide for ourselves. Because we can drive ourselves crazy asking, who do men say Jesus is? Who do the scholars, who do the historians and educators and the media say that Jesus is? Some of them, a few of them will say, he's the savior of the world. But most will say, he's a historical figure. 
He was a teacher. He was a, maybe a prophet. And we live in a day and age like never before that if you want to back up any crazy idea you have, you can do it by jumping on the internet. And Jesus talked about that in the end days that we will be able to heap up teachers for ourselves. We're living in that day right now. Never before have people been able to heap up as many teachers as we can heap up right now. And it's always been a sad thing. It's happened many times where somebody's gotten discouraged or frustrated and they just decided, you know what, I just don't want to be a Christian anymore. I've got a problem with the church or I've got a problem with this or that. And so they, they decide, well, you know what, I'm going to jump on the Internet and find out if anyone else agrees with me. Well, of course. You can heap up teachers with any crazy idea. That Jesus never existed, that Jesus was an alien, that whatever you come up with, you will find people teaching the same nonsense, and then they would come back to me and go, well, I was on the internet, and look at all the stuff I found. Well, of course you did. It's the internet. It's filled with crazies. <laughs> and now you're one of them, too, you know? <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't mean a thing, because we can drive ourselves crazy and spend our whole lives going, who do others say Jesus is? The only question that will matter for all of eternity is who do I say Jesus is? Right? Who do you say Jesus is? Peter has the right answer. You are the Christ, Son of the living God. Man, Peter's moment to shine. (laughs) For all the mistakes Peter makes, this is the one that he was like, he just doesn't hesitate, just throws it out there. And I don't know why, my weird, twisted sense of humor, I always picture Peter kind of doing it like he was only halfway paying attention anyway, right? Maybe he's eating a sandwich or something, and he's, you know, and, and Jesus asks this deep question, Peter's like, well, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus goes, yeah, that's it. He's like, oh, wait, did I get something right? You know? <laughs> yeah! Again, that's not in Scripture, that's just the way my mind works. And Jesus makes it clear to Peter and to all of us, to the disciples that were there as well, that this revelation that he just so quickly spoke was not revealed through flesh and blood. It wasn't revealed through Peter's deep intellectual study. It wasn't revealed because he had spent years researching the life and history of Jesus. It wasn't revealed because he understood Mathematics and chemistry and all of those things. Those things will all back it up. And it's great to wrestle through a lot of those things. But the revelation was given by God. It wasn't that he just figured it all out. It wasn't that he solved the mystery. It was revealed to him, not through those things of the world, not through flesh and blood, not through some great intellect, but by Jesus says, my Father who is in heaven. Now, the question comes a lot of times after that is, so who does the Father reveal Jesus to? Are there only some people? Was it not all of the disciples? Was it not all of the people that were there or around that the Father had revealed this truth to? I think he revealed it to everybody. You think about how much was revealed to those religious leaders. They heard Jesus' teaching. They had spoke with him, debated with him. 
They'd seen his love and his mercy and his kindness. They'd seen miracles take place right before their very eyes. They had so much revealed to them, as much as Peter in a lot of ways. But their arrogance would keep them from acting on it. Peter was just like, I got nothing else, man. You're it. You're all I got, Jesus. And so the evidence that was revealed to him, he received it, and so much so that he was willing to speak it out loud and didn't even hold back. Now, the next few verses um, have been twisted in weird ways, misunderstood and mistaught. Um, And this is where Jesus in verse 18 says, You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. It's really a play on words. Um, I wouldn't say it's like Jesus telling a joke, but in some ways it's him playing upon Peter's name. The name Peter means rock. And so people go, well, there you go. Peter was the first pope. Peter was the one that led the church. Peter was the one that had the keys to the kingdom. And I've had people say it was a literal set of keys. Like Jesus is going to go, all right, now here's the one to the garage. And then this one opens up the, you know, it's, it's so much easier than that. And it's caused confusion. It's, it's taking people in weird directions. Yes, Peter was a, a great leader in the early church. We see him in the book of Acts being the one to stand up and preach the gospel so clearly thousands get saved. And he continued to be a leader there in Jerusalem for years. But he is not the rock. The truth he has spoken is. While Peter would be used in the church, the truth that the rock he just spoke is what it's all about. On this rock I will build my church. On the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that's what the church is built on. Not Peter. And Peter and the rest of the guys understood that. The truth that Jesus is the Christ, the gates of hell will not prevail against that truth. Nor the church that stands upon that truth. Now here's a thing that for years I misunderstood. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I always had this picture in my head, like the Christian warrior with the shield of faith and, you know, the hammers of hell falling down upon this brave Christian warrior just getting beat, you know. But in the end, he would prevail. We misunderstand it if that's how we picture it. And for years, that's what I did. That we would somehow, at the very end, we'd, you know, Jesus will come and rescue us and we will prevail. What Jesus says is the gates of hell. Gates are defensive. And the idea, the picture that he's painting is the church, armed with the truth of who Jesus is, is storming the gates of hell. And it will not prevail. Changes the whole way we look at our Christian walk. We're no longer on the defensive in our faith. We're on the attack. Not against people, not against politics, not against any of that stuff, against the gates of hell. To save as many from entering those gates as we can. And it will not prevail. It's a promise. It's not a may not. Hopefully it won't. Absolutely will not prevail. Verse 19, he says, I I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. 
Again, big misunderstanding. Again, it's not a literal set of keys. Keys are always a picture of two things, authority and access. And he's saying, look, I'm giving you the authority of the kingdom here on earth, and I'm giving you access to all the truth of who God is. Right? It's a huge amount of power, responsibility, and authority that's, that's given to us, and it's pictured with the keys, the things that not everyone is given, not everyone will receive, are given to the disciples and given to the believers. The idea of binding and loosening. Again, people have misunderstood that, that it's like some sort of magic power to bind the devil or loose blessing. Um, it was a very common term used in, in the Jewish culture to either bind or loosen. It had to do with the law. That there were some laws, whether food laws or whatever, that you kind of come up against and you're like, I don't know whether I, it's better to keep this or whether it's too better to fudge on it a little bit. And to keep it would be to bind it. No matter what, I'm going to keep this law. To loose it, to go, nah, it's actually more destructive if I keep it, so therefore I'm going to give a little leeway. And specifically, Jesus, I believe, is talking to the 12, going, you guys are going to help establish the church. You guys are going to decide what's important and what's not. You guys are going to have to look to the word of God to go, which is from the Lord, which is of the old covenant, which is the new and that's what he's talking about. The things that you, you will be given an understanding of what needs to be bound, what needs to be held onto and not backed up on, and what things needs to be loosened up. And I believe, again, to some degree, to a much less degree, it's given to us, right? We have the leading of the Holy Spirit to know how this church operates, what's going to be a blessing to our community, right? Not rigid rules. It's like, that's it. That's all we're going to do. There are some things when it comes to the person and the power and the deity of Jesus Christ. Absolutely, we don't back up on any of that. Those things are bound on earth and in heaven. And there's a lot of other things that we go, yeah, we can loosen up on that a little bit. Because it's better for this congregation. It's better for this community in our area, right? And that's what that's speaking of. Like I said, these things are really a lot more easy to understand than, than we have made them in the past and people have taken them in weird directions uh, but they're powerful promises and blessings that are given to us, and we don't want to miss out on any of that. And then after all of this, this moment of revelation, Jesus then tells the guys, don't tell anybody about this. <laughs> that would have been the hardest thing, right? I mean, here's this time, and again, they they've were like, yeah, okay, I believe this guy's the Messiah, and I'm going to leave my family and leave my business, and I'm going to follow him. But this is the point where he was like, that is absolutely right, Peter. This is what it's all about. This is what the church will be founded on, and you guys are going to establish that. And they're like, yeah, finally. Now, I still don't understand what all that means. And then Jesus goes, oh, and by the way, don't say anything. What? You got to keep that you know, quiet because there's a timing to these things and the events that have to happen. All right, verse 21 it says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, for you, an you are an offense to me, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. 
And then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what would it profit what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with the angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Surely I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. While Jesus has alluded to his death, there's a change that takes place here. This is a change of the way he's dealing with the disciples, what he's sharing with them, that before he pointed to it, but it was in a very generic, like, is he really talking about a physical death? Now he's like, yes, absolutely. He makes it clear. We're going to go to Jerusalem, and I am going to die. And this had to be hard, because Peter still thinks that he is in line with the Word of God, that he's in line with the heart of God. Surely God the Father would not want his son to suffer and die. And so he pulls Jesus aside like, no, that is not going to happen. I'm not going to let that happen is the idea. That Peter is, and, and it's kind of interesting that he doesn't do it in front of the group. He's just kind of like, Jesus, no, that's, that's wrong. Now, again, I, I feel for Peter because he believes that he's in line with the Father, but the fact of the matter is he's actually in line with the devil. Because the devil is, is tempting Jesus, going, you don't have to go to the cross. There's a way around the cross. You don't have to give your life. You don't have to die. You can, you can avoid all of that. That is the message of the devil to, to tempt Jesus. And now Peter is basically saying the exact same words. And that's why there's that strong rebuke. And I can't, again, poor Peter, man. He goes from being the rock who's spoken this revelation, like, yeah, boys, you see that? And to like, you're the devil, get behind me. What? But I think there's an important thing that we can take away from this because one moment, man, we can be in line with the word of God. We can have our hearts in line with the Lord himself. But if we're not careful... We're going to start thinking that our opinion is what he thinks too. Right? That's, that's the, the route of the scribes and the Pharisees. They started well, but they thought that their opinion was God's opinion as well. And went completely the wrong direction. Get behind me, Satan, for you are an offense to me. You're not mindful of the things of God. In other words, you're not connected. You're not taking in. You're not hearing from the Holy Spirit. You're not in line with the Word of God. You're in line with the things of men. For us, we've got to be so careful to make sure that our opinions, our ideas, all of that is put to the side. And I think there's, I know I've talked a lot about this over the last probably six months or so, but I think there's a real challenge in our society right now to do that, especially as it comes to politics. That our opinions and the echo chamber that we are in, we need to be very careful to put all of that aside and get back to the Word of God. 
Now, there are times where politics will line up with the Word of God. But when they don't, I don't care. Because if a person's in line with the Word of God, no matter what they say, no matter how they voted in the past, if they're in line with the Word of God, then they're going to be in line with the Lord. And that's what we want. It shouldn't be about trying to change somebody's politics to then bring them to a right place with the Lord. No, everybody needs to come to the Lord the same, right? And we're, we've gotten to a place where we are so sure that our opinion, our voting record, our politics are what God thinks too. And I'd have to say, for the most part, we're wrong. And we've got to be very careful, very dangerous, very harmful. And we end up pushing people away like the scribes and the Pharisees, because somebody else doesn't have the same opinion as we do. And we're pushing them away from the Lord. So dangerous. We must be mindful of the things of God rather than the things of men. And then Jesus says, and again, it's, it's, he's not changing subjects. It's with these things in mind. Verse 24, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Let him put all his opinions, all his desires, all of his wishes, all to the side, and follow after him. And following after Jesus has nothing to do with our comfort or our security in this world certainly has nothing to do with fame or riches. And he is reminding the disciples and reminding us to follow after me. That road leads to your death. He doesn't mince words at all. If you come after me, it's going to mean your death. Now for the disciples, it was a literal death. For us, it has to do with dying to ourselves. Putting his priorities far above our own. His desires above our own. Realizing that he's the one that sets our direction. Doesn't mean we're all missionaries. Doesn't mean we all become monks. It means that wherever we're at in our life, we are letting his truth set our priorities. That heaven is our home and that Jesus himself is our treasure and nothing else matters. And then he tells them this odd thing. It must have just shocked them. Verse 28, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, first, I think this is pointing in the short term to what's going to take place in the next chapter of the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John are going to see Jesus changed before them. But I only think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is that John would receive the revelation. Not just see Jesus change briefly before them, like on the Mount of Transfiguration. John would see Jesus coming in his kingdom. The whole story, it all happening, unfolding before his eyes. And Jesus is saying, one of you is going to see that. You know, It's awesome. For us, Again, I think it comes back to the only question that matters. Who do we say Jesus is? We can spend time talking, arguing, debating with people for hours about church history, which is a mess, and, and, and religiosity, and church politics. Again, all a mess. 
But what I've found time and time again is bringing people down to that simple question, but who do you say Jesus is? I understand you not liking the things of the church. Join the club, right? I mean, if, if somebody's honest, well, I think the church has hypocrisy in it. Duh, yeah, of course. It's got people in it, right? We're, we're, we're a mess. But we're able to come together and hopefully be an honest mess before the Lord. So a lot of the arguments about what people want to talk about are things that have to do with church or history or how they grew up. But you just bring them back to that, but who do you say Jesus is? Yeah, I agree with you. I got problems with all that stuff too, but what's your problem with Jesus? And I've yet to have anybody give me a solid answer. I remember talking to this guy, and we talked for hours about all that other stuff. And finally, I'm like, hey, man, what it comes down to is who do you say Jesus is? And he got teary, and he just said, I don't know. And I said, that's the only thing you need to answer. Let all the rest of that stuff go. Just quit holding on to all that bitterness and answer that one question. That's what it's all about. And so I think that, first of all, is the question that we, of course, need to answer for ourselves. But then it, when we know that Jesus is the Christ, the, the Son of the living God, that it's then our responsibility and our joy that we get to bring that question to others. Not who do men say Jesus is, but who do you say Jesus is? Because in the end, that's all that will matter. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.